All right, open up your Bibles. 1 Samuel, chapter 27. If you don't know where the book of 1 Samuel is, go to the table of contents, and it'll be toward the front of the Bible. 1 Samuel, chapter 27. And to launch us off, I want to ask you a question. I want you to seriously think about this. When was the closest that you have ever been to giving up on your faith? When is the closest that you have ever been to giving up on your faith? Now, let me tell you what I don't mean by the question. I don't mean, um, when was the closest that you've been to denying the lordship of Jesus Christ and the fact that the Bible is God's word? That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, when was the time that you were the closest to saying, I've had enough? Like, this is too much. I can't move forward. God, I understand that you're in control of all things, but what the lot you've given me is too much. I'm done. Okay, I'm going to live my way because your way is honestly just too difficult and all it's done is made my life harder. When's the last time that you have been at a place uh, where you said, I'm done, I'm giving up? And you'll notice that the title of this sermon is The Journey to Backslidden. And I want to define this word for you and I want to start off with um, an illustration. Uh, it was about five, six years ago, um, I climbed my first mountain. We've taken a group of um, uh, students and young adults and singles and college students every year to Colorado to climb a 14,000 foot mountain. It's really, really hard. And so the first one I ever did, I wasn't probably the most prepared that I should have been. And there was, a, there was this um, hill and it was pretty, it was pretty steep. It was very steep. Um, and it was probably, I'm just guessing a hundred feet, but you know, when you're in it and you're low um, uh, oxygen in your brain, everything's kind of weird. And so uh, I'm looking at it and it's really steep. It's really icy. It's all snow. And I'm trying to get up and I'm with one of the, one of our, one of the girls in our church and I'm walking up this, and we keep sliding back. And we get up like 10 steps and we just slide all the way down. And it was so aggravating. At one point, the girl with me said, um, I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to hang out down here. This is just too much. And I said, you will not give up. Now, what also was frustrating is that 60 and 70 year olds were just literally like hopping up the ice, you know, and uh, they had the right shoes, which made everything so much infinitely easier. Um, but what I also didn't know is that if I would have gone like 30 feet around the corner, everybody else skipped the snow and they were actually just walking up dry ground around the corner. I'm like, oh, we sat there for probably 20 or 30 minutes just trying to get up this thing. But it's like you take four or five or six steps back and then all of a sudden you're right back to where you began. And honestly, as a pastor, this is my experience with so many people. It's like you believe in your head and you, your heart wants to follow Jesus. And it's like you take a steps forward and then life happens. And you end up right back where you started. And it's like you cannot make any forward motion on your relationship with Jesus, overcoming sin. And you constantly land right back in the same place. And, and that's how I want to define backslidden. It's like you just can't move and you are stuck right at the very beginning of things. Now, some people are going to define backslidden as you've rejected Jesus, and there's a million definitions. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm really simply just talking about um, you're never going anywhere, and you are um, right back always to the place you started. Some of you grew for like a year or two or three years, and you slid all the way back to the lifestyle you were right at the beginning, and it is frustrating, and I want to define it for you. Here's what backslidden is. Somebody who has slipped backwards in their faith to the point of giving up. Someone who has slipped backwards in their faith to the point of giving up. Now, unexpectedly, when we get to 1 Samuel 27, we find David um, at this point of backsliding. Now, this is frustrating for me because if I'm just reading the story from beginning to end, if I didn't know what was coming up, I mean, they, the Bible has described David as a man 
after God's own heart. And David has overcome insurmountable difficulties and challenges. He's been faithful to God. He's been tempted to stumble a couple times and then he gets back up and he does the right thing. And, And I expect, as I read about this man after God's own heart, he is going to persevere through difficulties. He is not going to have what turns out to be a 16 month season of walking away from God, walking away from God's people, disobeying the Lord, and functionally living amongst what we would call non-Christians without any support or encouragement from God's people. Um, I would not expect the man after God's own heart to do that. But just as a regular dude, I want to say, as I read David, I am so, so glad that people like David who have struggled and messed up royally, that God can still step back and say, you are a man after God's own heart. Some of you this morning, you have been backslidden. You are at the very beginning. You may have made some progress forward, but now you are functionally living like you were before you came to Christ. And the Lord, I think this morning, I hope is going to provoke you, is going to poke at your heart a little bit, encourage you, and draw you back into a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. And I have just good news for you. We serve a God who gives second and third and eighth and one hundredth chances. Is where you say amen? That was weak sauce. Three, say amen. Amen. Thank you. And so open up your notes, and if you guys would follow along, fill in the blanks, it'll help you um, engage. And the first um, two words on there, and I want to set up the context, is difficulty and discouragement. David has been in what we have called the exile of David. As a boy, he was anointed to be the king of Israel. And very quickly, the actual king, Saul, um, was threatened by him. And so Saul has been trying to personally execute David time and time and time again. And David has taken a group of what was 400 men and now is 600 men. And they are running for their lives. And what David does not know is that this exile, this period of being casting out and running away, is going to last an entire 10 years. And uh, at some point, David is overwhelmed with discouragement. He is overwhelmed with difficulty, and uh, he is now about, when we start in this chapter, eight and a half years in. Okay? Timing is actually very hard to nail down in this, in this book. So here's what you need to know. Of the 10-year exile, we're probably about eight and a half years um, into this. David is probably in his early to mid-20s. My best guess would be 21 to 24 years old. So David is a young guy running for his life um, for eight and a half years. He's got 600 men, not just the men, but their families. So he's got um, roughly probably two to 4,000 people traveling with him, and they're all running for their lives eight and a half years into this. Now, is it fair to say that David went through difficulty? Yes. Is it fair to say that David was somewhat discouraged? We're going to, can I get, yeah, yeah, that's, um, and so here's, here's what we find. Um, ongoing and unending difficulty and discouragement often culminate in giving up, in despair. Uh, this is, there's only so much that a human being can take, and there is only so much suffering that you can go through. Most of you in this room don't know what it means to suffer for eight and a half years. You don't know. Um, and there is limits that most people have. And David actually is about to hit his limit. He's going to hit the moment, the point of despair, where he just wants to step back and say, this is too hard. I'm giving up. And in your notes, under chapter 27, verse 1, number 2, it says despair. I want to read verse 1 for you, and then we want to spend actually some, quite a bit of time in this verse. Then David said in his heart, 
Now, I shall one day perish. Now, I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking, my, seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. I want to define despair for you. It's a condition of the head and the heart where hope is not seen or felt. Despair is a condition of the head and the heart where hope is not seen or felt. And then finally, giving up feels like the only option. It's this point where you look and you don't see any opportunity to get out of this. You don't feel like there is any way for this to be over and done with. And the only option you have left is, I'm giving up. I'm giving up. And I want you to know that that is right where David is at. He is at the point of despair. Every one of us deal with difficulty and discouragement, but there are catalytic events in your life. There are these moments that push you beyond your boundaries, beyond what you are capable of handling, and you don't know what those are if you haven't experienced it. But this is that event that has pushed David to the point of giving up. He doesn't see or feel hope. Now, this verse actually provokes for me what's kind of a frightening question, and here is the question. What just happened? If you read before this, the last verse, he had a victory over King Saul, and Saul literally just got done, one verse before this, looking at him and basically saying, you're a better man than me, and you're going to be the king. I mean, over the last couple chapters, Samuel, the prophet of God, Abigail, his wife, Saul's daughter, or not Saul, Abigail, his wife, and then uh, Jonathan, Saul's son, Everybody is looking at him and saying, this is your destiny. You're going to be the king. And finally, Saul himself looks at him and says, you're going to be the king. And he goes to bed and he wakes up and hears the self-dialogue going on in his head. I want to know, what just happened to this man? Eight and a half years in that he finally just says, I'm giving up. He just breaks. Like, what's going on in this guy's soul? And there's um, three things right away that I just want to draw your attention to. And here's the first. David's greatest enemy is not out there. It's in his heart. It's in here. That David's greatest enemy is out there. The Lord has permitted David to go through eight and a half years of living hell. And the Lord has permitted this. And in this process of this living hell, David's heart is being exposed before him. It's like God is putting a mirror to his heart and saying, look what's in you. Okay? This suffering, this difficulty is a mirror. Look at what is in you. Because if we don't kill this now, this will kill you later. And ironically, every single sin that we watch David in his kingship succumb to, all of them were exposed in this exile. All of them were revealed to David. David knew what was in his heart. God put a big fat mirror and said, look in the mirror. And here's the question. David, will you kill the sin in you or will it kill you? Because if you don't deal with the now, this will come back to haunt you. That's the first thing, is that his greatest enemy is not Saul. It is himself. Number two is that ongoing seasons of discouragement and difficulty are incredibly dangerous for mature Christians and even more dangerous for, we'll call them, immature Christians. Now, I just want to make a statement. Some of you are sitting here and saying, I'm smart. I know the Bible. I've been walking with Jesus for 20 or 30 or 40 years. You self-identify as, I am a mature believer in Jesus. You look at other people as less mature spiritually. And I, I want to just look at you and say, if it happened to David, it can happen to you. If it happened to the man after God's own heart, it can happen to you. 
So let go of your arrogance, let go of your pompousness. If it happened to David, it can happen to you. And you need to believe that. Because as soon as you think you're above this, when life crashes around you, when, when everything goes to, to junk around your life, and when the most valuable things from you are taken, will you despair? Will you despair to the point of giving up because you see no way out of this thing? Many of us don't know where our limit is, but life has a way of taking you there, whether we like it or not. And the Lord also has a way of allowing us to go that direction and to be there because he's letting us see what is truly inside of us. Honestly, sometimes the suffering we go through right now is God exposing us so we can kill it now before it kills us later. Finally, number three, there's a huge difference between feeling forsaken by God and being forsaken by God. Saul sits on his high horse, sits in his uh, palace, sits on his throne, and everybody looks at Saul and says, God's with him. But is God with Saul? No. God has fully rejected him. Saul's trying to hear from God, and he can't. David, on the other hand, David's in the cave. David is fleeing for his life. The whole nation says, woe is David. But was God with David? Yes. Here's the irony of, uh, of the entire circumstance, that the one person who feels like there's no hope is the person who God is actually with. And the person who is actually on the throne and who has all the comforts of this life, God has fully rejected him, and there is, nothing, there's, there is no relationship with him and God. Uh, this is backwards. This doesn't feel right. And, but here's the reality is that uh, there's a huge difference between feeling forsaken by God and actually being forsaken by God. And so we're at a crossroads. David's at a crossroads. And here it is. Discouragement, difficulty, despair. You didn't ask for it, but you're there. And you look at your life, and you have two options. Will I believe what I feel, or will I believe God's word? And this is where David is stuck. And David has an option. I can believe God's word, I might still be in exile, but I'm going to dig deep. I'm going to hold on to what God says I am and who God says I am and where I'm going. Or I can give in to the lies, and I can start the spiral of disobedience, which leads me to backsliding away from the Lord for a season. And unfortunately, David chooses the path of self-deception, which is the third point. And I want to go back, and I want to look at four lies David believed. And you're going to notice that of these lies, they're cumulative. They build on top of each other. Backsliding does not just happen in a day. It happens as a process slowly. Difficulty, discouragement, despair, self-deception. Do you get that? And so here are the four lies that David believes, and I'll be honest, I, I just see them all the time. And everyone might be at a different place, but here's David's lies. Lie number one, I don't need to consult God. Look at 27 verse 1. Then David said in his heart. Now, David, whenever he needed advice or direction, where has he always gone? Straight to God. And actually, in this story, God is not mentioned anywhere. And the authors do this on purpose because they want you to know this is a season of exile now that David is exiling himself from the Lord. This is a season of, of backsliding. And so David says in his heart, David becomes his own counselor. And let's be straight for a moment. When you're in despair, who's the last person that should be giving you advice? You, okay? Like, I am my own worst enemy when I am in despair. I say the most ridiculous things. If I followed my own advice in my moments of despair, trust me, nothing good would ever, ever happen. And here's the truth. David believes the lie. He becomes his own counselor. 
He believes a lie that I don't need to consult God in this moment, but the truth is very simple. God graciously pours out his wisdom in his word, graciously, overwhelmingly gives us truth, that promises that are secure, that will never fail us. And we need to go back to the word of God and we need to say, I'm gonna hold on to these things, come hell or high water. I'm gonna believe in who Jesus says I am because honestly, I don't feel it, but therein is the crossroads. Therein is the crossroads. Line number two, what God promised isn't realistic for me. What God promised isn't realistic for me. I, I know what you said, okay, but there's too much standing between me and your promise being fulfilled. It's not realistic for me, so I'm just going to do my own thing. It says this, David said, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Is that what God's word said to him? No, not at all. And he steps back, and there's too much in front of him. It is too big. It is too hard. The God's promises, it's, God, it's not realistic. It's not realistic. I, I'm actually going to die here. Now, here's the truth. God's promises never ever, ever fail. Ever. Ever. Not once. Not ever. God's promises never fail. Let me tell you, the way a person um, talks to themselves who believes that God's promises never fail is very different than the person who believes that God's promises aren't realistic for me. Number three, David believes that life is better with non-Christians. Now watch this. He's going to, uh, these lies are going to build on top of each other and they're going to start informing his decisions. He says this, There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. This pagan, debaucherous, disgusting culture. David says, It is better for me to be with them than it is to be with God's people. Do you see how the lies are accumulating in his mind? Do you see that now he's actually at a point where he says it's better to be with these people than it is to be with God's people? I mean, he's, this is irrational, which is what happens when we're in despair. We turn irrational. We tell ourselves ridiculous things, and then we believe the lies. Jeremiah 22, 23. Um, amazing passage of scripture. One verse. I just want to read this to you. Um, it is written literally, we'll, we'll see this in a bit, to backsliders, to faithless ones. And here's what it says. This is a person who's come back after leaving the Lord for a season. Truly, the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains. So this person has lived the life. They've done it all. And there are all of God's enemies, people who have resisted God, rejected God, hate God, and they're having parties, and they would do them in the mountains. And this is spiritual and religious and fun, and they're drunk. It's a blast. They're all laughing. It's a huge party. And this person who's been there is now coming back, looks at it, and says, the hills are a delusion. All of that, it, it, it's a lie. It is one big, fat lie. Um, it is fun. Let's be honest. For the night, it's fun. But it kills you in the end. And he, this person, after having been with the Lord, leaves the Lord, sees that, experiences that lifestyle, comes back, and he says, the hills, the sexual immorality, the debauchery, the disgustingness, I've been there, I've lived that, it's all delusion. And then this is what the person says, truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And, and, and this person has been there, and, and, and they've 
believe the lies that it's better to be with non-Christians in that kind of environment and to party it up and live it up and, and it's going to be better over there. And then finally they step back and say, that's death. Salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where salvation is actually at. Here's the truth. The lie is life is better with non-Christians. The lie is that, or the truth is that life is infinitely better with followers of Jesus, imperfect as we are. I mean, we're imbeciles, okay? We do stupid things, right? But when the core of your community, okay, when the core of all of your people, right, and you, is, is non-Christians, it is infinitely better when the core community, the main people who speak into your life are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, you know me well enough to say, I'm not saying don't be friends with non-Christians. I'm not saying get out of the world. I'm saying who are the people that inform your identity, who inform your life, who encourage you in your deepest moments of despair? Do they love Jesus Christ? Uh, who are the people that control what you do or do not do, or the, who control the communities and the cultures that you're around? Life is infinitely better when your core people are followers of Jesus Christ. Infinitely better. But when we're on this uh, lying spiral, we believe the lie that somehow life is better out there. And the um, uh, man who says this in Jeremiah says they're a delusion. Lie number four, everything will work out just fine without God. It says this, David says, Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David has a demented optimism here, but again, he's irrational because he is desperate. He's in despair. Here's the truth. Without God, I will spiral out of control. Without God, I will spiral out of control. And in my spiral, there will be people who don't love Jesus, and they will never call it a spiral. They will look at you and say, yes, this is the life. The life in the hills is the life. Uh, But what God's people know and what you know deep down in your heart is that this life is a downward spiral. It's a downward spiral. The truth is, without God, I will spiral out of control. Uh, Jeremiah, um, actually, I think the passage is 322 or 2320. Anyways, the, the rest of the passage says this. Return, O faithless ones, or some versions have backslidden ones. The words basically mean the same thing. Somebody who is walking with the Lord and has gone back to ground zero. Return, O backslidden ones. I will heal your faithlessness. And then this is their response. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. And then they declare this, truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains, truly and the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Some of you are here and you have backslidden. You've known what Jesus wants you. You've had that moment maybe of even trusting Christ as a kid or in college or something like that. And, and I don't know if your salvation was genuine or not. I don't know if you received the Holy Spirit. That's not my place to judge. But you know, and the Spirit of God has been consistently letting you know that your life is not what God wants for you. You know it. And you've been trying to resist it and quench it, but it's haunting you. You've believed all the lies. Life has been hard, has not been good to you. And you've believed the lies that life is better out there. You've believed the lies that I can ignore God for a season. It's going to be just fine. And here's the reality. The Lord, uh, people who have been there, done that, say, that other stuff, the hills, it's a delusion. Real life, real salvation is with God. Now, here's what happens. They go on a uh, cycle of disobedience. This is point number four. We're going to now go a little faster through the text. It's been like a half hour in verse number one. Here's what happens. You believe the lies, all this self-narrative out of your despair. We're fools. It's what we do. And then we actually act on the lies that we believe. The first one is we leave God's people. So it says this, verse two, David arose 
and went over. These are two very strong words that you should pick out. David went over. I mean, imagine the line uh, between Israel and Philistia. And that moment he actually decides to step over that line is a significant moment in his life. He's not just believed the lies now, he's acting on the lies. And it says, David arose, he went over, he and the 600 men who were with him. Now catch this. I mean, do we do dumb things when we're in despair? Yes. <laughs> to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. We've met Achish before. Achish is the king of Gath. Who is from Gath? Village church? Goliath. And what did David do to Goliath? Chopped off his head and carried it around with him, and he still has the head with him. Okay? Catch that. So, offense. David, in his genius of desperation earlier, a few years back, says, I'm desperate. I'll go to Gath. So he goes to Gath before, and then he realizes, this was not a good move. These people are going to kill me. And so he starts acting like a crazy person, spit running down his beard. And finally, Achish says, I have enough crazy people. I don't need this guy. Get him out of here. And David is, by God's miraculous sovereign hand, spared from that first time. Now again, he's in desperation. So he says, I think I'm going to go back to Gath. Like, is this logical, anybody? I mean, I'm sitting here looking at David, bashing my head against the wall. And at the end of the, at the, end of the day here, David had given up. He'd given up. He looks at his life over here with, with God, and he looks at his life over there, and he says, that's better. I'm going to go to Gath. I'm going to go. Maybe, maybe things will work out over there. And that's the first thing people do is they leave God's people. They distance themselves, and it is gut-wrenching to watch. Gut-wrenching to watch. The second thing that they have to do is hide their true identity. Uh, David now still believes in the God of Israel in his head. He hasn't rejected his faith doctrinally. He's rejected it practically. He's a backslider, not doctrinally. He's a backslider practically. And David, uh, at the end of the day, if he's going to live there, has to lie. He has to deceive. He has to act like something he's not. Verse 3 says, And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David and his two wives. I mean, this is 600 men plus a couple thousand people, wives and children, uh, in a foreign land, and at the end of the day, they're just planting down, and they are going to do what they do. What, what, is this me- what are these men's occupation, by the way? Warriors. They fight, right? And uh, we're going to watch as they have to deceive. This just continually unfolds. Finally, number three is they believe the temporary peace. That there is this sense that when you go into the hills and you participate with all the debauchery of the world, that there is a temporary joy that comes with that. There is this sense of I finally got what I want, right? David has finally gotten what he wants, which is Saul to stop hunting after him. And there's this temporary peace, but he had to get this peace at an enormous cost. And the cost was his relationship with God. And here's the peace he believes. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, He no longer sought him. And so here's what David is saying. Finally, the one thing I've wanted for the last eight and a half years, I have. I have fought for this, prayed for this, begged for this. And finally, I have it. His men who have been saying, David, kill Saul, kill Saul. We want peace. Um, Our family is in danger. Our kids are in danger. Our wives are in danger. Our parents are in danger. Please, David, give us peace. And finally, David compromises and says, here's the way to get it. I'm just going to leave the nation. I'm going to go live with these people. And he finally has what he thinks he wants. But is this what he really wants? No. This is not what he wants because the Spirit of God is still in David, prompting him, provoking him, nudging him, letting him know that this is just not right. But for a moment, he believes this temporary peace. Number four, 
settling into the non-Christian lifestyle. Do you see how this is all starts with the head? You believe the lies, and it's just cumulative. Just sl- Before you know it, you're here. It says, then David said to Achish, if I found favor in your eyes, which means if he found favor in his eyes, he's acting just like a Philistine. Then let a place be given to me in the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant, catch this, the anointed king of Israel, is calling himself the servant of the pagan Philistine king. Like this is backwards. Do you see, do you see how David is acting like a fool? For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Now take this name Ziklag, put it in the margin of your mind. We're going to come back to that at the end. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that, that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. How many months is that total? 16 months. 16 months of backsliding, walking away from the Lord. And then finally number five, after you have... Um, settled into the non-Christian lifestyle, you just become the functional non-Christian. It just becomes your identity. And look what happens. Now David and his men, they went up and they made raids against the Jeshurites, the Gerizites, the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old. Now you need to know something about these people. Um, These people are enemies of Israel. These are people that God had told the Israelites when they went into the land, destroy all of these people. And if I started telling you the evils of these people, you would have actually looked at this from God's lens and said, destroy every one of them. Um, We had uh, an extensive sermon, I think about two months ago, on biblical genocide and why that happens. Um, I'll reference you back to that, and if you need to know where that is, come ask me. But um, at the end of the day, God had sent his people um, to destroy them. These were evil people doing atrocities unknown to 21st century America, okay? I mean, this is disgusting stuff. Now, not only were they Israel's enemies, but they were also the Philistines' enemies. And so very simply, here's what happens. David says, well, we're warriors. This is what we do. Uh, We're living in this land, so let's just go fight people. And so they start going. Now, here's the deal. Um, David's not all bad, right? I mean, he's not just this terrible human being. He's actually a pretty good guy. He's a pretty nice guy as things go. And so David ends up, and he starts fighting the, uh, the enemies of Israel, but he also starts fighting the enemies of the Philistines. And then here's what happens. Verse 9. And David would strike the land and ne- leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep and the ox and the donkeys, the camels and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, uh, where have you made a raid today? David would say, uh, against the Negev of Judah, against the Neg-. Basically, here's what he said. I was fighting Jews. And was that true? No. He's lying to him. Because what happens when you are living a functional, non-Christian lifestyle, you start hiding your true identity and who you really are and what you're really about and the things that you're actually, deep down in your gut, really passionate about. And at the end of the day, um, he lies them. Verse 11 says, And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, quote, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines, lying, lying, lying. And Achish, I love this, he's kind of a fool, trusted David thinking he has made himself an utter stench to, the, to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Number five, we get to the dilemma. Because there's a point that comes in your downward spiral where even your moral limits will be tested where you have lived this life and you are as low as you can possibly go and you get to a point where you are going to be asked or expected to do something that pushes you to a moral limit that even you uh, would not cross. 
And David is going to find himself right in that. Uh, we're going to spend uh, two verses in chapter 28. It says, In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to war, to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Now, we are fast-forwarding now. This is kind of funny. This is frustrating to catch time frames. We are now at year about 10 of the exile of David. We have just fast-forwarded 16 months. We're probably two weeks, four weeks, three weeks out from David actually becoming the king. And Achish says, we're going to battle with Israel. Now, what David does not know is that this is the battle where King Saul and Jonathan are going to be killed. He has no idea. And David is stuck here in a quandary because the king looks at him and he doesn't suggest it. He says, you are going to fight with me. You have no options. And if David enters into this battle, he will be killing his own people. How will he ever be the king of Israel if he fights against the Jews? David doesn't want to do this. At at, at the very core, he does not want to do this. And so David is absolutely stuck. Verse 2, David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Bodyguard literally means guard of my head, which is really funny if you consider that David chopped off the head of Goliath from Gath. And so the author is kind of setting you up here for some funny little things that are going to happen. The rest of 28, we're going to deal with later because the, the, the rest of 28 leaves this story. I'm going to come back to this story. We're going to go to chapter 29, verse 1, and undeserved deliverance. David is bashing his head against the wall. How am I going to get out of this? There's no way to get out of this. And so what we find as the text unfolds is David says, I'm going to take things into my own hands. This is where David could have gone to the Lord and said, please God, I'm an imbecile, save me. But he doesn't. He appears, the text appears to um, show us that David had a plan um, to get himself out of this. It says this, now the Philistine forces had gathered the forces at Aphek and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? So imagine this, armies from all over the land are coming, and they're all gathering together to fight, and then all of these Philistine commanders look and they say, Achish, why do you have 600 Jews fighting for you? Do you not understand that if we are in the middle of battle, there's no way they're going to fight their own people? And so what they actually do is these commanders give away David's secret plan. They say, here's what's going to happen. He's going to want to win favor with Saul. And so the way he's going to do this is in the middle of the battle, all of their men are going to turn and they're going to start fighting us. And we won't even know who to fight at that point. And David's probably thinking to himself, yeah, that's a pretty awesome idea. That's, that's actually not bad, you know. And, and that seems to be the plan. That seems to be what's actually going to happen. And, and Achish says, he's trustworthy. He would never do that. He's made himself an utter stench to Israel. You can rely on David. Trust me. And then finally, Achish realizes, I got to tell David the truth. There's no way this is going to work. And verse 6 says this. Then Achish called David, and he said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. That's funny. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong with you from the day of your coming to me this day. This absolutely reminds me of high school. I cheated on a chemistry test my senior year of high school. I got an A+. Plus. I mean, just literally cheated every answer. And I got home, my mom was like, you did a great job. I'm like, no, that was not true at all. I did not do a great job. Anyway, David's probably sitting here like, I'm not honest. I'm a decrepit liar. Like, actually, nothing I said to you was true the whole time. You were a fool. Um, 
Nevertheless, Achish says, the lords do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. At this point, David should be saying, oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, God. I didn't know how I was going to get out of this. There's no way out. We were going to probably have to go to battle in the middle of this, but not David. David said, Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day that I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against? Check these words out. The enemies of my Lord, the king. So Hebrew scholars have all drawn this out. I think this is so insightful. Uh, I absolutely would have missed this had I not read these commentaries. That all throughout this, who does David keep calling his Lord? Saul, over and over again. Who does he keep calling his king? Saul. Who does he keep calling his enemies? The Philistines. Now, this is really sneaky at David. He looks at him and he says, um, I want to go with you that I may go and fight the enemies, who are the Philistines, of my Lord, who is Saul, who is my king. And Achish has no idea what David is up to. And at the end of the day, the Lord does not approve of this plan. Uh, the Lord does not approve of this in any way. The Lord is, wants to look at David and say, stop trying to take things into your own hands. Clever idea. Let's be straight. That's a clever idea. Okay? That's pretty good, David. Right? But it's not your battle. It's not your battle. In fact, I've ordained that the Jews are going to lose this battle and that their king is going to be killed in this battle. And I don't want you anywhere near this battle. Get out of here. And so finally, God, God sends them back. And we don't find David actually coming back to the Lord until chapter 29. I just want to read to you the beginning of chapter 29 because you would think at this moment, David would say, God, you're amazing. Thank you for getting me out of this dilemma. Thank you for saving me. For 16 months, I've been backsliding and you've been so good to me. And so David um, doesn't. And he finds himself in an even worse scenario. And I'll just read to you chapter 29, verses 1 through 6. When David and his men came to Ziklag, remember that city that they were given, all of their families are there and their kids and their wives. On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. And they had overcome Ziklag and they burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. 600 men weeping and wailing until they had nothing left. Now, if you thought that first dilemma was bad, this is even worse. Verse 5, David's two wives, they had been taken. Verse 6, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all of the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. And here's how it ends. And for the first time now, David finally comes back to the Lord and says this, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And this is a, a question that just haunts every one of us who have been in the season of backsliding, who are there, who will be there. What else does God need to take away or do for you finally to turn to him? What else does he have to do? What, does he also, what else does he have to take away? How low does he have to allow you to go before he will, before you will come back to him, before you will come home? I want to give you just two encouragements as we close. Number one, <clears throat> most of you in this room probably have somebody or will have somebody that you'll have to walk through discouragement, difficulty, despair, self-deception, the spiral of disobedience. Like you're going to walk people through this. I mean, your hope is that you can enter into the discouragement or even the despair, and you can be a source of life for them. 
But I'll tell you that every one of these places, these seasons, requires wisdom on our part to navigate it well. If you crush the despairing with rebuke, you will just crush their souls further and push them farther away. If you get somebody in the spiral of, uh, of disobedience and you give them the idea that it's all okay, that there are no problems, you do them no good. If you hear somebody spouting off lies and deceptions that they believe and you just allow them to go on thinking those things, like that's not the way to handle this. Every single season or aspect of this cumulative um, backsliding requires wisdom on our part, which, which is why when you sense somebody is in any kind of spiral, any kind of, any kind of descent into darkness, we step back and we say, God, would you please give me incredible wisdom because this is very sensitive. Because if it can happen to David, it can happen to anybody. And it has happened to follower after God over and over and over in Scripture. And the good news is, for every one of those persons who have fallen, who have backslidden, who have gone back to that lifestyle, the Lord has been so gracious. And I just want to give you an encouragement. Come home. Come back to Jesus. He has second and third and hundredth chances over and over again. And I'll tell you that you can be one of those persons who um, steps back and says, the hills are a delusion. Salvation is in the Lord God. And I'll tell you, you will never, ever regret it. I have yet to meet somebody, yet to meet somebody who says, I regret returning to Jesus. <laughs> I regret not disobeying God more. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, there's something about life in Christ that is infinitely more satisfying and joyful than anything anybody else has to offer you. It's beautiful. I just want to submit that to you. Let's pray together. Lord, um, it's a sticky subject because we are all prone to being such fools. And Lord, if it can happen to David, if it can happen to Peter, um, it can happen to us. Strong men and women have gone before us and experienced things that push them to the edges of despair. So God, I pray that in this season before that happens, that you would not just reveal in a mirror what's going on in our hearts, but you would change us. Lord, we just don't have the ability to change our own hearts. It's not our jurisdiction, but you do. So God, would you enter and would you do work in us that honestly we just cannot do ourselves? Lord, we don't want to be backsliders. We don't want to believe lies. We don't want to go down a spiral of disobedience. But God, unless you are working and doing a miracle in our heart every day, um, that will be our fate as well. So Lord, you have promised to finish what you've started to protect and preserve your children. So I, I ask that you would do that. And Lord, those places of our hearts that honestly, if they go um, wild, will kill us. Will you kill them before they kill us? God, I know that's a hard process and I understand that for some of us, that means we're gonna have to go through some uh, incredibly heavy and weighty difficulties just for those to die. But God, in the midst of that difficulty, would you give us perspective so that we can see that you are in control of our difficulties, you're in control of our circumstances, and it's not a joke. It's not a cliche. You absolutely are working them out for our good, despite how we feel now. We love you. Thank you. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.